welcome to Weird Studies, an art and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes and to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Basically, my feelings can be summed up by an Andrew W.K. song called Music is Worth Living For. Right. Music is one of the very few things I think of as being like genuinely worth living for on some level that I can't articulate rationally. Uh, music seems to me to be consubstantial with life itself. It is, to me, a life force. The great Franco-Romanian thinker, essayist, Emile Sioran, he wrote mm-hmm. that if it wasn't for Bach, there'd be no value in this universe at all. Oh, that's a great line. I've actually often thought that without <laughs> realizing I was someone else's thought. Right. He he thought that Bach alone could justify existence. And if it wasn't for that, then there'd be no purpose at all. He was a pretty dark-minded fellow. But what he's saying really is that beauty justifies the world. And this is one of the key notions in Nietzsche, is that the existence is justified aesthetically. And nowhere is this more obvious, or is the, at least the sense of that sentiment more obvious than in music. Um, so let's get started then. Yeah, let's actually talk. Well, so right. we're doing Joker Man, right? Yeah, we're doing Bob Dylan's song Joker Man from the album Infidels, which was released in... 1983. 1983. Um, This is... And I know this because the genius lyrics page for Joker Man is open in front of me. I figured we would probably talk a little bit about the lyrics because everybody does with Bob Dylan's music. Well, I mean, if we're not going to talk... Yeah, so so maybe this is a bit of a cheat because I'm not going to... Not a lot of instrumentals in a Bob Dylan album. (laughs) I'm not going to be focusing too much on the, on the, the music per se. Um, that's okay that's but, cool. uh, but on the lyrical content which I think is the, kind of the point with, with, with Bob Dylan even though I think he's a tr- tremendous singer and musician um, his voice for me is like and this is what we touched on that at the end of the last episode that you know he once tried to quit smoking but then had to start again because it was wrecking his voice or was making his voice too nice <laughs> um <laughs> but, you know he, he that, that kind of crude untrained unschooled undisciplined quality that his voice carries kind of makes the music in a sense you know it is in itself a kind of of music uh that reminds me totally. of a passage from henry miller's uh, tropic of cancer when he says i'm not writing i'm singing and i'm singing badly <laughs> you know <laughs> so something about something bardic about bob dylan it's obviously something prophetic about his music as well and nowhere is this more evident than in this particular song i'd argue it's yeah it's a fantastic song and it's truly a work of prophecy it appears on the album infidels which was his first album uh after his uh quote-unquote evangelical christian phase where he released a, a number of albums in the 70s that were inspired by Christianity. And he, he seemed, because nothing is anything with Bob Dylan, everything seems, I find. He's a master of seeming. As he says in Joker Man, he's a manipulator of crowds and a dream twister. So he seemed to have 
converted to Christianity for a while. And that really cost him career-wise. I mean, people were kind of getting off the Bob Dylan bandwagon for a bit because he got a little preachy. And then he released this album, Infidels, which was hailed as he finally saw the light and came back to us kind of thing. But, but the aesthetic and the poetics of Infidels are hardly non-religious. The songs are steeped in religious imagery. And in fact, this is something that was true about Bob Dylan throughout his career. He's always been primarily, I think, a religious writer. And I think Bob Dylan, he, he belongs in the, the great theological tradition of the West. I think he's a theologian in a very real sense. He's talking about God and he's trying to think God in light of the catastrophe that was the 20th century and the death of God that kind of spurred that that whole thing. So so the album Infidels is steeped in religious imagery. It's hardly it's not unchristian, but it's a, it still remains very biblical, but it also has a very strong pagan quality, which I think is the new element that comes in with this album and it really really um, shines in Jokerman. Listening to this song 2018 and looking back at the events that occurred uh, since the song was released, he's really describing the future. So, so what? So, what aspects of it seem to you to be prophetic? Which lines in particular stand out to you as referring to things that seem very familiar from our present age? I don't think it's anything specific. It's not like you know. There's a song by Leonard Cohen called "The Future," in which he makes very specific predictions that have turned out to be true. Uh, your private life will suddenly explode. But in Joker Man, it's more he's describing a process that is not so much predictive or it's not prophetic in a chronological sense. It's prophetic in the sense that he's drawing out of the mire of history certain forces. He's showing us things that are at work. And what I what I really want to say is that it'd be hard today to ignore the fact that these forces are at work, but they were still at work back then. So it's not a question of him having predicted certain things. I mean, there is a, a verse here. Um, the rifleman stalking the sick and the lame. Preacher man seeks the same. Who'll get there first is uncertain. Nightsticks and water cannons, tear gas, padlocks, Molotov cocktails and rocks behind every curtain. I mean, there's been a lifting of the curtain, I think it's clear to say. And I think that things are, a lot of what he's describing here is much more transparently evident now than it was when he was writing in, in the Reagan era. So... I'll just leave it at that when it comes to like the specifically predictive content in the, in the song. But what's interesting about the song is what he's drawing out in terms of revealing a particular complex that the modern West has to deal with. And that's the ambivalence of good and evil and the ambivalence of the image of God. And I think that's what this song is about. Standing on the water, casting your bread So how is this song about God or Christ and the devil, yeah. which I think is what it's about? Well, Joker Man is a trickster figure. That's quite, quite evident. And there are two figures in the song. There's one figure born in the first verse, 
born with a snake in both of his fists, who is the Joker man proper that's being sung to in the chorus. This Joker man figure is born during a hurricane in a time of upheaval. Throughout the song, Dylan is describing this figure of Joker man, who is, in a sense, Bob Dylan, but in another sense represents this kind of Christ figure uh, who dances in the world, observing what other people don't see, seeing through the charade of history and seeing the real essences at work and things. But then at the end, there's a, a dis- the description of a second birth. It's a shadowy world. Skies are slippery gray. A woman just gave birth to a prince today and dressed him in scarlet. He'll put the priest in his pocket and put the blade to the heat, take the motherless children off the street and place them at the feet of a harlot. Joker man, you know what he wants. Joker man, you don't show any response. So this double birth, to me, evoked the idea of the hostile brothers in myth. So when I was thinking about it, I I reread a particularly fantastic chapter in Jung's book Aeon, where he describes the, the slow revelation through history of these big archetypes. And I think that this song is really is trying to get at something like the ambivalence of the Christ archetype and the cost we're paying for not recognizing that ambivalence or for partially realizing an archetype that is, in fact, much bigger and darker and stranger than we've come to think. You know, the idea that Christianity was the major event in Western history is, I mean, that's hardly controversial, no matter where you stand on it. And what Jung saw was that with Christianity, a new archetype of the self arose. But that archetype, because of its appropriation by the church and because of the way society, Western civilization, tried to master it, which is impossible to do with an archetype, it became one-sided. And so um, entire regions or aspects of that archetype became unconscious. And that occurs in myth in the form, in Christian myth, in the form of Satan. So Jung writes, for example, he writes that you can't have Christ without the Antichrist. The Antichrist develops in legend as a perverse imitator of Christ's life. He's an imitating spirit of evil who follows Christ's footsteps like a shadow following the body. So the minute Christ is born, the devil is born. But Western civilization has been insistent on the idea that God is good. Whereas for Jung, and I I would argue for Dylan, we have to recognize that God encompasses good and evil. And only when we accept this will we be able to see what's going on behind the curtain. And to, to transcend the deadlock of modern history, which manifests in all kinds of irreconcilable dualities like left and right or capitalism and communism, etc. All these dualities are basically a failure on the part of the Western psyche to incorporate opposites in the Jungian sense. And this song is really about that. The character described is good and evil at the same time. It's hard to say whether he's describing Christ or the devil from paragraph to paragraph. Um, yeah, it's true. Yeah. So, so that ambivalence, that play of ambivalence, which is in itself a mark of the trickster. The trickster is always a crosser of boundaries, a mixer of categories. That in itself points to a search for a deeper reality than the conventions we've, we've inherited from a tradition that refuses to acknowledge certain truths about the human soul and about the moral basis of our existence in this world. I couldn't agree with you more. There's a strong pagan flavor 
to this song, um, uh, to the lyrics of this song, is starting right from the beginning. And by the way, I would like to point something out. This song just starts. <laughs> there's yeah. no introduction. There's no four measures for free. There's no like instrumental. I mean, there almost always is in most songs. There's a little instrumental something or other, a tag or hook, something to get you hooked into the song. And here he just starts. It's uh, true. Starts singing. And what's the first thing we hear? Standing on the waters, casting your bread. It could not come up with a more Christian image than right. that. Right. It's, it's specifically it, it, from the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, casting mm. your cast your bread on the waters for you will reap great rewards or something like that. No, but and then the next line is while the eyes of the idol with the iron head are glowing. And I'm not going to try and nail it down. It, Dylan exegesis always becomes profoundly stupid when people try to find like the exact thing that an image refers to as if it were like a roadside sign or something. Dylan always guarded his mysteries pretty carefully and his images are always like resonant in multiple dimensions. Yeah. But eyes of the idol with the iron head are glowing is unmistakably an image of, I mean, it might come from some cheesy old jungle movie starring Maria Montez. <laughs> Imagine, you know, scantily clad maidens dancing around an idol with an iron head. That that would be a totally imaginable scenario. But then at the same time, and I read that, I think about the, um, the brazen bull, which to me is one of the most peculiarly horrifying ideas to come out of antiquity. It's a way of torturing people to death. So the brazen bull would be this enormous brass bull that would be heated up with fires underneath. It's basically a big oven and you throw people into this oven and they roast to death. And the peculiarly horrible thing about it is that as they are roasting to death, their screams can only be heard as a kind of vague mooing coming out of the mouth of the brazen bull. Yeah. There's something about that particular detail, the transmutation of screams into this mooing, that to me is like a weird, an eldritch horror that I can't even describe why I find it so horrifying. But once I get that image in my head, it's a really sinister second line. So we're thrown straight into the first verse and the first thing we get is an immediate juxtaposition of a highly Christian and a highly pagan image. Yeah, and I, I would, I'd like to point out the uh, one obvious reference point here would be Moloch, you know, the god Moloch from the Bible, who is one of the Cainite gods, who also had other names. You know, it's, there's some debate as to who Moloch is or who he represents, but Baal was another one. And there was actually in Carthage a gigantic bronze statue of Moloch, this demon that people will, would literally line up and throw their children into, um, yeah. to, burning them to death. Like they would sacrifice children. And there was, for a long time, a lot of people were skeptical about that. They were saying a lot of the church fathers had exaggerated or the Bible was being metaphorical. But then they found these grave sites with tons of children and animal bones. Um, yeah. near the site of Carthage. So this was actually practiced. So the idol with the iron head is the thing to which people sacrifice their children. I think it was Douglas Rushkoff who invokes Moloch in one of his talks that I heard once where he says, we still have Moloch. It's the U.S. military industrial complex to which we send our children to be burned to death, you know? And, you know, think what you will of that. The point is that the image holds... 
Um, uh, Gary Wills made a very similar argument about gun control in the United States, arguing that the regime of very few restrictions placed on firearms in the United States is Moloch, that we are sacrificing our children to this idol. Right. So so Moloch is a, a potent symbol of the power of the state. And the entity of the state as a kind of God is very much present in this song. It comes back on a few mm-hmm. occasions. Did you want to go on line by line with uh, your analysis? Well, maybe not line by line, but like the born with the snake in both your fists. Yeah. <laughs> is is uh, perhaps also somewhat Gnostic in its sound. Um, I think it's a, a reference to a particular uh, statue that comes from, I think, Minus. Uh, Minoan civilization. Oh, yes, it's Minoan. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's so you right. see there's a woman holding a snake in both of her fists. I think there's also reference there to Hercules, who was born with Strangled snakes in his... Yeah, yeah. strangling them. It's hard for me, given the sort of, like, I don't know, slightly pagany flavor, Christian and pagan at the same time in his lyrics. And Jewish, yeah. It's And Jewish, yeah. It's hard not to think of Joker Man in terms of the tarot fool. Yeah. You know, the Joker of the deck. Yep. There's, um, there's even a reference to that. Yeah, uh, the little dog licking your face. The small dog lick is in the, on the, the traditional tarot, in the Marseille tarot, tarot. The fool is pursued by a little dog who's kind of ripping his pants, right? Biting, exposing yeah. the fool's ass and uh the small dog is yeah is is a direct reference to the to the fool from the tarot and which is interesting to me because that opens up the question of the holy fool one of my favorite imaginal figures parsifal yes who is a holy fool the ambivalence of that figure because you know holy and yet a fool an idiot not somebody you can necessarily place a whole lot of trust in. In Parsifal, in Wagner's opera Parsifal, Parsifal fails notably until he succeeds. And he comes to realize, he's like, oh, geez, I was so stupid. Well, yeah, there you go. Mm-hmm. You know, holy but of no use to anybody. Yeah. Until the end, until the third act. There's a couple of lines here in, the, in Joker Man where he says, the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the law of the jungle and the sea are your only teachers. Well, this, this to me kind of points to exactly that ambivalence. So the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, these are books of the Bible that are basically just prescriptive prescriptive books where the laws are, are described, the laws of the, the Hebrews are described in minute detail. And they're rather severe laws. Too. Yeah, there's one where there's actually a law for if two men are fighting and a woman walks up and grabs one of the fighting men's testicles then her hands should be cut off or something like that. Like they actually wow. have to codify. Did this happen very often? <laughs> it must have because it's codified in the Bible. Um, so <laughs> it's such a strange thing. But uh, the point Oddly being Oddly specific. Yeah. <laughs> but here. Like there's a story behind that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a story. Moses saw something one day and he's like, man, we got to put this in the books. This is the third time I see this this month. So, but here, uh, the, the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy are tempered or countered by the law of the jungle and the sea. 
and the law of the jungle and the sea being the purely eminent wild laws of nature, which are also teachers. So there in that, that those two lines, you have an expression of this ambivalence of the necessity yeah. of ambivalence in a, in a, in a, for a, in order for a self to become whole or to be able to transcend its historical situation. You need to be able to get in touch, you know, as Jung said, to, to realize your shadow. This is something that's particularly difficult to do today in the moralistic environment that we um, we live in. But uh, yeah, so 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 there is that profound tricksterish ambiguity and that willingness to go to the dark side and see what's going on there. Um, and I feel like this ambiguity is just coded in so much in the song. Okay, so I want to take a step back for a moment and talk about like how what are we listening to with Dylan? Like what exactly is communicating itself through our ears to give us these images, to give us these interpretations? It's easy to say, oh, well, you know, you're just talking about the words. What about the music? Mm -hmm. But in a way, in a way, that's kind of a false question. Our idea of music is kind of an abstraction for most of the world throughout most of history. The category the people would have in their heads wouldn't be music. It would be song. Right. Of song course. is song is a primary and indivisible reality. There's a kind of a fundamental reality for a lot of people in the world where it's just sort of like song isn't like words plus music. It's this indissoluble compound of words and music. Right. You know, and they and the question that opera composers have been asking for hundreds of years, do you start with the words and then do the music, or do you start with the music and then the words? This is a long-standing debate. And from the point of view that I'm trying to promulgate here, that's a kind of fake question. That's a question that is only an artifact of a kind of analytical separation between music and words but if you're thinking about song as a kind of primary reality it's uh the word that i like to use is mellow poetics right you know right it's the combined force of the words sung in a particular way a certain kind of storytelling so let me give you an example of what i'm talking about the line at the end of the first verse freedom just around the corner for you but with the truth so far off what good will it do there's something about the way he sings that line, freedom just around the corner for you. The line popped out at me anyway because there's a book of American history called Freedom Just Around the Corner that I read ages ago, and I never realized that the title of it was, in fact, a line from a Bob Dylan song. This happens all the time. Bob Dylan is uh, such a reliable generator of resonant verbal images of great lines. Of great titles. Yeah, and grit that, yeah, everybody mines the, his words for titles. And if you don't know the songs, then what happens is you encounter the songs. You're like, oh, that explains that. That you know that who explains that. You that, know that puts it's like him, Shakespeare. Or yeah, something. like Shakespeare and the Bible, which are the other. Yeah. I think those three, Bob Dylan, Shakespeare, and the Bible, <laughs> are in each other's company there as a, a source for titles and potent images or phrases. Yeah, yeah, and and, and so and so when you have that experience like you hear the title and then you encounter the context you're like whoa okay there's some complicated thing that happens in your head in this case it obviously it stood out to me 
but what was interesting to me is it's not freedom just around the corner. It's just, it's freedom just around the corner for you. Yeah. Which suddenly makes it sound like an old-fashioned advertising slogan. You know, right. freedom just around the corner. Like, imagine if the line was sung like that. You know, freedom just around the corner. You could do that, right? Yeah. It sounds fucking lame because it sounds way too affirmative. Freedom just around the corner. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Freedom just around the corner. It seems aspirational. But freedom just around the corner for you makes it sound like an artifact of consumer culture. Not freedom for all human beings, just for you. And that commonplace little for you at the end of the line lets it down with a bump, which is perfectly allied to the rhythm of the line. Freedom just around the corner for you. And it, it ends weakly. Right. And so it undermines the line. And then when we trip to the next line, with, but with the truth so far off, what good will it do? It's a great mellow poetic moment because the detonation of this line is reliant upon not just the rhythm of the words, but also, you know, the unique quality of his voice. Something I like to do in classes where I'm teaching his music is actually to take a line of him singing and slow it down by about 50%. And then all of a sudden you can see all kinds of little things he's doing with his voice in hesitations and uh, doing things with vowels and doing things with the, the intonation, hitting a pitch slightly higher, slightly low. All of these things that are squeezing more juice out of those words. It creates this kind of like indissoluble alloy of verbal gesture of words with a sung gesture, which is pertaining to a level of meaning that doesn't have to do with signification. Right. And so th th these lines are so resonant, but they're only resonant in a way when Bob Dylan sings them or their full resonance only comes out in a specifically musical context. Anyway, to get back to this particular passage, though, I want to say, you know, getting back to the ambivalence between a kind of pagan and Christian sides to this song, freedom just around the corner, but for you, this privatized freedom, the Joker man, if he is some kind of like, holy fool, some kind of impaired Christ figure, finds himself in a situation where freedom is possible for him. The nature of society is such that freedom, like everything else, becomes privatized. Right. And so you end up in this situation where freedom is possible if you're one of the winners in this society. But that itself constitutes a massive untruth. And yes. with truth so far off, like who the fuck cares that you're free? If you're, if, yeah, I've, I've had this, I think I've mentioned this to you before. I've, I've always wanted to write this musical about a, a poet from a foreign country, authoritarian country, who is whisked out of his, of his police state by his fans and comes to the West and then becomes a big star and goes on Oprah, on Oprah here. But then at some point realizes that the reason he can say anything he wants here is because nothing matters. <laughs> that absolute freedom of expression, which I strongly believe in, quote, by, by the way, can occasion a relativization of all expression. 
so that yeah it's only because we there is no truth that you can say anything you want and then at the mm. end of this musical that i'm imagining the poet would return to his police state and face his executioners proudly and filled with love because they understood what he was saying more than anyone else you know <laughs> that wow that's a cool idea i think there's something about that in that line is that we've privatized freedom i think it's a brilliant observation but we've given up truth we've given up the truth of a moral horizon for example or the truth yeah especially that that's what's really at stake in the modern west i think is that you know it's that old thing with when god is dead everything is permitted when there is no more truth well what good can freedom do freedom is only good if it's free to find truth right and then once the truth if the truth is the truth then you can't be free to ignore it. <laughs> you know, like, freedom is a means to an end. But at the same time, it's it's much more ambivalent and ambiguous than that. And But we don't have to get into that. But that's it's such a potent line. Um, I've heard that line used by a, a priest once to, to try to show how Dylan is this kind of like, um, that his work is kind of this Christian witness, right? And there's a lot of truth to that, but it's only half the truth. The full truth is ambiguous. I also think that in that line, he's he's referring to the second birth. He's saying the first Joker man is born. So the Christ Joker man is born and he's free in this world. But the truth is far off because the other half isn't born. The other son isn't born. He's mm. born in the last verse. And in that last verse, he does another thing with uh, the melody or the, the mellow poetics, you call it. Yeah. That I think is very interesting. He breaks the meter and it makes that line so powerful when he says... Um, so it's a shadowy world. Skies are slippery gray. A woman just gave birth to a prince today and dressed him in scarlet. So already he's kind of like like packing in more words into the meter, but he's still respecting yeah. the meter. Then he says, he'll put the yeah. priest in this pocket, put the blade to the heat, take the motherless children off the street and place them at the feet of a harlot. You know, like when he's placed yeah. them at the feet of a harlot. That part is so yeah. powerful because it's like, it's this uh, exuberant overflowing of vision at the end. He's going into this yeah. paroxysm of, of visionary uh, revelation that he, he has to fit all this stuff in. And, um, and I find that so powerful. But then he counters that. He says, oh, Joker man, you know what he wants. Oh, Joker man, you don't show any response. And that's how the song yeah. ends. You know, yeah. after another chorus, it's like you don't show any response because you knew, you know that the other son the other half is necessary. There's no, there's no fighting it. There's always mm. that profound ontological ambivalence to everything. And I, I, and I think that's perfect. That's such a beautiful way to describe Dylan, the way Dylan reacted, you know, Dylan started his career as this kind of like activist, um, engaged poet. And then all of a sudden he just left that scene. He's like, yeah, that's not what I was about. And they're all like, what the hell? They all felt betrayed. And he, he's like, I'm dancing to my own tune, man. But that's, he's not, he's, he's dancing to the nightingale tune. And the nightingale is a, a night bird. It's this explorer of the in-between. And this is what Dylan has always been about. And his moral message is a call to each of us to inhabit that space, that uncomfortable space of ambivalence and ambiguity so that we can come to know ourselves and the world for what they are. It's a beautiful spiritual message. You know, after he left Christianity behind, at one point somebody asked him, so are you still a Christian? 
And he's given various answers to that. Uh, sometimes he says he is, sometimes he says he's not. He made a Christmas album several years ago. And he was seen like at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem performing the right and tradition, like with Orthodox Jews. So it was people like, oh, is he Jewish? And at one point, though, he in an interview, he said, the music is the religion. And that is the truest thing he said, because the music being art is precisely what transcends any type of moral absolutism. It's a, mm. a power by which we rise above the demented parade of history and see it for what it is. And that's what Bob Dylan's been doing, you know? Yeah. He sings and dances in the ruins of civilization. And I think in this song that that really, really stands out. Mephisto Waltz number one is a virtuoso showpiece, but it's an interesting piece as well. Liszt has a reputation among classical music aficionados for being a composer of uh, what we call flash and trash pieces. You know, pieces that are in slightly questionable taste. A lot of the time, these are pieces that are aimed at showing off the stupendous technique of the virtuoso pianist playing them. So, you know, a lot of people say about Liszt that his music is pretty superficial, but the Mephisto Waltz is an interesting piece because, yeah, it's all about virtuoso display. And I would recommend to our listeners who want to get to know the piece, find a good YouTube, uh, like a video recording. Watch the pianist's hands because the drama of this piece is only partly the tones, the sounds in your ear, a lot of it is a kind of almost performance art of like a pianist standing up there on stage all alone, you know, taming the piano, taming this wild beast, subduing the instrument and the audience through feats of astonishing physical virtuosity. Liszt's piano music sometimes almost resembles some kind of esoteric martial art. And the story of Mephisto Waltz number one, and there is a story to it, is told not only in music, well, not only just purely in the sounds, but also in the visible struggle of the pianist with the instrument. The story that I'm alluding to, okay, so this is a piece that has a story. It's a piece of program music. And the idea of program music is to write some instrumental music that nevertheless is based on a story or perhaps an image. The idea is not necessarily that you're trying to tell a story in music, but maybe what you're trying to do is tell the story of the romantic artist's response to a story. You know, you could create a tone poem about like a mountain range, for example. And it wouldn't be necessarily that you're trying to come up with musical equivalents of like the peaks and valleys, which would be corny, right? Uh, but rather perhaps trying to capture the sublimity of the scene through its reflections in the poetic soul of the composer. Something like that. But nevertheless, there is an idea that 
instrumental music can go beyond a kind of wordless and abstract condition and reach out into the areas of our imagination that are pictorial and representative, um, that we can hear stories in music. Narratives, you know? yeah, narratives. Yeah, narratives. Yeah. Uh, this idea became quite controversial. One of the big debates among composers in the 19th century is basically on this very point. You had composers who were very much on the program music side, and then you had composers who defined a position of what they called absolute music. The idea of music whose content is identical to its form. Ultimately, the meaning is the arrangement of tones and not any particular narrative or image we might attach to them. There's a possibly apocryphal story of Robert Schumann being asked what a piece of his meant, and then all he did was just play it again. Because the idea is, well, nothing you can say about the music is in other words nothing of it there's no content like the form of it that the notes on the page that is its content does that make any sense yeah there's a famous story in in, in literature about t.s Eliot being asked what the line three white leopards sat under a juniper tree in the wasteland meant and he said it means three white leopards sat under a juniper tree. And T.S. Eliot was very much in this tradition, even though he thought that all the meaning the words carried also played into the, the melodic power of the music itself, of the poetry itself. Yeah. So it's. Yeah. It's, and, and I mean, it's in the line, next line of development of that is people writing poetry where the words don't actually aren't intended to mean anything. They're mouth noises, they're sounds. Yep. Or possible to write poetry that doesn't even use words from any natural language, yep. where it just becomes pure melody. You right. know, you think about like Gertrude Stein. This is uh, what the critic Daniel Albright calls a pseudomorph, very characteristic modernist kind of thing to want to create an artwork that is actually another artwork or some kind of strange hybrid. So Gertrude Stein's poetry being poems that seek to attain the condition of music, because what you're getting from them is not imagery, it's not the sem semantic meanings of the words, but it's the sound of their arrangements. Yes, another, um, another example is the late plays of Samuel Beckett like not I, where it's just a mouth talking super fast and that the words are, there are still words, but they achieve such a pitch and speed that they cease to signify. And you're just hearing the wording of the words, not so much what they mean or what they're referring to. Right. You know, this attempt to, to, to reach that point where, where, signif where, where signification fails and all you have left is pure significance. Absolute, yeah. absolute art. And you sometimes even encounter that in rap, you know, like Ghostface Killer from the Wu-Tang Clan. I remember reading an interview with him where he's, somebody asked him what something meant. He's like, you know, sometimes I will say stuff just because it sounds ill. Yeah. You know, it, it's not for meaning, but just it sounds ill, like a kind of pure music of the language. Mm -hmm. uh, I think this is something that will occur to you <laughs> if you work with words sooner or later. Like, do they actually have to mean something? This so, is this is specifically this is what we were talking about when we were talking about the that's right the musicality of painting and the musicality of it's precisely what we're getting at it's not a formalism that's representative it's not formalism in the real sense it's more of a I don't know it's it's much more affective than conceptual 
and mm-hmm. it's it's like a, a pitch that you reach in in art and i think that you know in a sense i think that both sides of this debate that you're describing from 19th century the the program music people and the absolute music people they're both right in a sense yeah and um and we have to find our way again in ambiguous ambivalent trickster fashion uh, not so much in between them or in some synthesis, but in a way that incorporates both of them into one thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think so. Yeah. So anyway, to talk about the particular program of the Mephisto Waltz number one, this is based on an episode from Lenau's Faust. Not good his Faust, Lenau. So Mephisto, the devil that has come to make a deal with Faust, Mephisto has restored Faust's youth and they arrive at a country inn. And the devil tunes up his fiddle and starts playing a dance, and people start dancing. And, of course, it's diabolical music, so people dance faster and faster, and there's a kind of compulsion to it. And there's a pretty peasant girl who catches Faust's eye, and he dances with her. And as the music becomes more and more diabolical, as it reaches this kind of fever pitch, Faust and the peasant girl dance their way into the forest, there to consummate their unnatural passions. Um, And so that's the story, right? Mm -hmm. And Liszt comes up with a couple of really striking musical ways to suggest this scenario. And the most obvious one is the one you hear right at the beginning, which is you hear this sort of stuttering, repeated note in the bass, sort of tweaked by like a semitone or a neighbor note. And then we hear a second pitch. And then a third. And then a fourth. And then a fifth. And now we have assembled a chord based not on thirds, like most chords that you will have heard are based on intervals of the third so now if i build a chord out of the interval of the fifth this is the sound we get which is a neat sound but it's very very different and it's a sound that is really more associated with 20th century music than 19th. Well, would but, this be would this be a particular one of those satanic intervals that were forbidden in sacred music? Is this one of them? The diabolus in musica is actually the tritone. Oh, yeah, that's satanic. Which is which is a fifth. That's a perfect fifth. But then if we flatten the top note then we have a dissonance, and this is what's called a tritone. And that interval is, for various technical reasons I'm not going to go into, is a constant problem in writing... Counterpoint, yeah. ...for right. church music. Right. And so it's not like it was forbidden because it was considered diabolical. Uh, it was just considered bad form. There's tons of tritones in Liszt's diabolical music. It's worth noting that Liszt wrote four Mephisto waltzes and a Mephisto polka um, and a Faust symphony. And like he was sort of in love with diablerie. He was fascinated by the devilish side. Interestingly, he became an abbe of the Catholic Church later in life. Although that's that was the move. That's what romantics did, the decadence at least. Yeah. But the point is that... It has a really straightforward denotative point to it, which is it sounds like what happens when a violinist tunes up his or her instrument. Oh, wow. B 
because a violin is tuned in fifths. There's a C string, a G string, a D string, and an A string. And if you go to a symphony orchestra concert and you hear, before they start playing the first piece, you hear a lot of sounds like that, it's because the orchestra is tuning up and everybody is playing fifths away from each other. Because you can hear whether you're in tune very easily if you play a fifth against somebody else. I have to confess that I love the sound of the orchestra tuning. It's always my oh, me too. F- it's, it's always my favorite part. I just wish they'd keep doing that sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what I, I mean, knowing nothing about music and, you know, truth be told, I listened to it and it, to me it just sounded like, because I'm not versed in classical music, especially not piano music from the, from the 19th century, um, with the exception of a few very famous pieces, um, it's very hard for me to penetrate this particular piece. Like, and what, what, I, what I like, though, is but, but knowing the narrative, knowing the story, then I was able to appreciate it. So I, I really like that, <laughs> that it's a program music, because it allowed me to listen to it imagistically and to imagine and to follow the story um, yeah. that he was telling through. The, so it was, it was like, it's like a nice gateway piece into this yeah. type of music, which I'm not very familiar with. The extent of my knowledge of this sort of music is like stuff like Chopin and, you know, the famous pieces that we all know from that era. And so so what attracted me to it when I listened to it and I thought about it before we recorded the show was this obsession with diabolery, this obsession with the devil that is present in lists, but also in many romantic artists. It's kind of Mm. uh, one of the centerpieces of romanticism. Totally. It evolves into decadence where the devil disappears and is replaced by basically legions of demons <laughs> who are just huh. as sinister. And I was thinking, well, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, you're kind of like, you know this era, you know this these artistic movements. What is it about Mephisto, the Faust legend, that attracted all these artists? And also, I'll just add that as a last little note, um, is that a lot of these artists end up converting to Catholicism, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. And there's, uh, I'm waiting for a book right now from Amazon that should come in any day called um, Decadence and Catholicism because I'm very interested in this in this phenomenon right now. To me, it's a very, very interesting period. That aspect of romanticism is very, for me, very pregnant with unexplored possibilities or maybe they have been explored. I'm just not aware of it. Yeah, I wanted to hear what you have to say about all that. So I've got before me Faust, part one, Goethe's Faust, translated by David Luke, which has the advantage of being a translation in verse. Pretty good, too. And I'm going to read the opening lines of Faust. And this is by way of answering your question, why do I think Romantic composers were so fascinated by Faust? Because it wasn't just Liszt. Berlioz wrote a... It's kind of a semi-opera. Sometimes it's staged, sometimes it's not, called Damnation de Faust. Both Gounod and Bussoni wrote Faust operas. There's a lot of Faust in 19th hey, century music. There's a lot of Faust paintings and Faust poems and Faust, all kinds of stuff. Like, yeah. 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 And I'm going to try and answer, like, why that is by reading the first little bit. So Faust is sitting restlessly at his desk. This is where we meet him. And he's a, a desiccated pedant who has found himself at the end of a lifetime of scholarship and study feeling that he has absolutely nothing to show for it. And he says, well, that's philosophy I've read, 
and law and medicine, and I fear theology too from A to Z, hard studies all that have cost me dear. And so I sit, poor silly man, no wiser now than when I began. They call me professor and doctor, forsooth, for misleading many an innocent youth. These last ten years now, I suppose, pulling them to and fro by the nose. And I see all our search for knowledge is vain, and this burns my heart with bitter pain. I've more sense, to be sure, than the learned fools, the masters and pastors, the scribes from the schools. No scruples to plague me, no irksome doubt, no hellfire or devil to worry about. Yet I take no pleasure in anything now, for I know I know nothing. I wonder how I can still keep up the pretense of teaching or bettering mankind with my empty preaching. Can I even boast any worldly success? What fame or riches do I possess? No dog would put up with such an existence. And so I am seeking magic's assistance, calling on spirits and their might to show me many a secret sight, to relieve me of the wretched task of telling things I ought rather to ask, to grant me a vision of nature's forces that bind the world all its seeds and sources, and in most life all this I shall see and stop peddling in words that mean nothing to me. It's so awesome. Yeah, it's uh, nice. For one thing... Uh, show me the professor who does not hear that passage without a pang of sympathy. You know, it's that kind of inner monologue. I've got a few ideas. Um, Stephen Pinker. <laughs> <laughs> you don't think he ever has those dark nights of the soul? Absolutely not. No, he just seems very complacent. His silver curly hair protects him from any type of toxic influence from without. <laughs> That could pollute his perfectly rational mind. Yeah. Um, and you can think of it as a, in a history of ideas way. If we're thinking in a historicist way, this is coming out of the Enlightenment and the feeling that the progressive idea of knowledge that, for example, Stephen Pinker still represents, that every day in every way we're getting better and better. We are adding to a sum total of knowledge and some time in the future we will reach that blessed point where we know everything it's only a matter of time we will have subjected all of nature to our power we will have made the world perfectly safe and regular and predictable and it doesn't take much to understand why human beings you know certain individuals say stephen pinker might find that a very attractive notion human beings in the main are never going to remain content with such a suffocating and boring worldview. And it is often said that the Romantics are seeking wilder shores, are seeking wider horizons. And so you can certainly read this as a feeling that conventional knowledge, you can see how people might reach a point where like, well, I already, I know all of this shit and it doesn't actually make a difference like there's something else, there's yeah. something beyond. And it's that something beyond, that intimation of the transcendental that is so important to the Romantics and particularly to Franz Liszt, who it's worth noting, titled one of his collections of pieces, The Transcendental Etudes. And, one, mm -hmm. and uh, the full title is, you know, Etudes of Transcendental Execution. But the idea is that virtuosity, you know, is not just an athletic business of moving your fingers real fast across the keys. 
the idea is ultimately that virtuosity, an attempt to reach a certain level of virtuosity, is itself a reaching for an infinite, a beyond, a transcendent. And so the pianist achieving superhuman powers at the keyboard is not just able to perform circus tricks like astonishing feats of Leger de Men. It's not just that. It's that that quest for transcendental execution is itself a spiritual kind of romantic quest. Right. And there's a fork in the the romantic movement. Um, there's a, you know, you'll have people like the transcendentalists who go towards this ever more refined, ever more ethereal transcendence. And then you'll have the dark romantics. And I would, I would say that this particular waltz belongs to that tradition. It's pretty which darkly is, romantic. Which is a, a yes. diving down. You know, in the, Faust, in the opening of Faust, he says, I will call upon the, the forces of nature, not yeah. the formal forces of intelligibility of pure diaphanous form, but the dark, obscure forces of nature. And that's why the guardians or the, the, the guides we need to the dark romantics are not the angels, as they were, for example, for Thomas Aquinas, and I would argue for people like Hegel, but rather the demons. And there's been a lot of resistance to that dark romantic insight. It's been described as, as conservative, reactionary, atavistic, but artists have a way of revealing what needs to happen in the psyche, what the unconscious is asking us to look at. It can come out in art because art is its own precinct and, and things are allowed in art that aren't allowed in real life. For example, this particular episode from Faust is a depiction of what essentially is a kind of rape, right? Yes. Um, that can be done in art. And so art is, this is by no means a, a novel claim, but art is a space where we where certain forces of the psyche that are usually just kind of obscured or buried or denied or repressed are allowed to kind of have free reign and reveal themselves. And that makes even the most reactionary quote unquote art progressive in essence, because it allows us to deal with stuff that we have to deal with. So I'm very interested these days in this, the romantic valorization of evil um, yeah. and celebration of evil, not for its own sake, and, you know, everybody, like Oscar Wilde was accused of this, of being superficial or being flippant with morality. But this celebration of evil in the name of finding the good. We talked about this in the episode we did on Machen, Arthur Machen's yes. uh, The White People. And I think there's something to it. And I hear it in this particular piece, but it kind of permeates an entire movement at that time. This is a piece that really does have a palpable flavor of wickedness about it in a way that a lot of 19th century diablerie doesn't, including a lot of pieces by Liszt. You know, some of Liszt's pieces are, are frankly pretty lame. This one isn't. So I would like to start narrating how this piece works, if I can. Sure. So first thing to say is that there are two main themes. And this is something I think a lot of people have a hard time with in classical music and getting into classical music is that most classical pieces are multi-thematic. They have you know, like various themes. And a lot of the fun 
a lot of the appeal of this music comes in the ways that composers can play themes off against one another. Often with strong programmatic or program music sort of implications. So in the Mephisto Waltz there are two themes and the first one is pretty obviously Faust's theme. It's a kind of striving, swaggering theme in the home key of A major. Quite apart from anything else, Liszt is getting us used to hearing something like a major chord with these neighbors. These are just a half step or semitone away from that, the fifth degree of the A major scale. And so we hear this sort of chromatic, that's the word we would use for music that involves a lot of semitonal motion. There's a little bit of chromaticism there. And that is important because it sets up a kind of subterranean connection with the second theme. And the second theme we can take to be associated with this peasant girl. And that theme sounds like this. But you'll notice that this theme is sort of slinky and weird. The first note of the theme is not actually from the D-flat major scale. It immediately resolves upward to a note from the D-flat major, D major scale. But the first note we hear is a chromatic pitch. It's off a little bit. And we hear that semitonal motion, that half-step motion, niggling half-step motion, right from the beginning in this theme. It sounds very different. It's in a different key, uh, and it has a very different contour from Faust's theme, but they both have in them this little kind of bendy, chromatic flexibility. Versus right right which suggests a kind of inner affinity between these two otherwise very distinct themes yeah and that might pay off in a uh, a story about seduction right Seduction or rape, depending on your point of view, it's sort of ambiguous. Right. But the overall shape of this piece, the dynamic of this piece comes from the interplay, a dynamic tension between these two themes. So once we get the that lovely D-flat major theme that we might associate with the peasant girl, we hear this theme at, at full length, and then we start hearing variations on it. In the main part of this piece, what we get are a series of variations on this second theme. What's interesting is that between each of these variations, we have little passages of what I like to call diabolical tinkles, uh, which is to say the diabolical influence, the influence on her will, 
is represented in these passages uh, very fast, very quicksilver, very virtuoso on the piano that sound a little bit like laughter, the devil's laughter. But it's it has this quality quite opposed to the sentimental yearning of the D-flat major theme. It has this sort of discordant note of mockery or at least levity. And it seems to come out of nowhere and it at first seems to go nowhere. It almost sort of sounds like a whisper in your ear and it just sort of stops. And now right. we get the beginning of the second variation of this D-flat major theme. Now it's a little bit more virtuosic. And so it's as if the theme, it's not only that we're getting a variation on the theme, but it's as if this variation has been precipitated by this outside influence. And the variation is like a variation on the soul state or the, the subjectivity presented in the theme. So we have here a kind of a neat musical image of suggestion, a diabolical suggestion. And by the time we're getting to the third variation of this theme, shit is getting pretty sinister. And by the time we get to around seven minutes, the diabolical music is really starting to take over. We have this kind of rising fury. The Remember what I said before about how the pianistic performance, the sheer physicality of a pianist grappling with the immense technical challenges of this piece is a large part of how this piece narrates its story. And you can see increasingly demanding piano writing. Or the pian it's almost like the piano's topping uh, himself again and again. You thought that was something? How about this shit? Oh, you thought that was something? How about this? Um, and then by the time we get to around eight minutes, that lovely lyrical theme has been thoroughly debauched. And the, probably the hardest single passage in the entire piece is this passage of insane right hand skips, where your 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 ha your right hand is going about this speed, and your and your hand is just flying over the keys. Again, I uh, I emphasize it's worth seeing a video of a pianist playing this. And what's cool is that the those skips that crazy skips is actually a shredded up thoroughly distorted version of what was a sweet innocent theme in d flat major and you have this kind of just amazingly at musical image of debauchery of a of of a person's subjectivity being drowned whether in outside suggestion or lust i mean of course it's not like ever going to be really obvious, right? In what you're describing, you're, you're showing us exactly how the piece tells a story without words. And it'd be interesting to imagine how a person would react to hearing the piece without knowing the uh, accompanying story or the source story. Um, because it seems to me that the entire movement that seduction, that slow kind of progressive exchange of sexual energy between two people, two entities that eventually consummates itself in this explosion, this kind of paroxysm of, 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 of wicked pleasure. I think that you can feel that in the music. You know, we often talk about the, the unhuman. And I think this sort of programmatic or narrative music is getting exactly to that point. It's, it's showing us how the energies that we channel through words and concepts and ideas and conventions and rituals and 
and traditions in the day-to-day are actually just ways of embodying or dressing or of, of, of ways of channeling energies that exist outside the field of the human. And so when you're hearing this music reenact this event outside of any type of uh, purely, merely human framework where, you know, it's, it's engirdled by laws and customs and language and codes, you're seeing the inhuman or the unhuman within the human. And I think that's something that this sort of music really does beautifully. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also find us on Twitter. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. Thank you.